everyone. I'm Ryan Nobles. I'm Rebecca Berg. And I'm Harry Enten. And this is The Forecast with Harry Enten. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. As always, so glad you decided to join us so close to Election Day. We have so much to talk about, uh, so uh, we're going to get into it right away. But we have something new today. We're adding a fourth chair to our roundtable, which did cause a little bit of trouble this morning. We had some trouble locating chairs in the CNN DC Bureau, but we uh, were able to do that. And that allows us to welcome in our special guest, Grace Sparks. Grace, thank you. Welcome to The Forecast with Harry Enten. Thanks so much, Ryan. I'm excited to be here. Talk about some polls. Great, can't wait. great. And you're sitting right next to Harry, which shows where oh. you are in the hierarchy of this podcast. Much higher than you, let me tell you <laughs> exactly. that much. The closer you get to Harry, Just the more important you are. starstruck over here. As you should be. As I am wearing be. makeup. Yeah. Is, is this like a cabinet meeting or something? So, so, so we certain agree. After, at the end of the podcast, we're all going to go around and tell uh, Harry how much we love him and how, mm. how, much, how great he's doing this election Just cycle. get me some fast food and we'll call it a day. All right. Well, he's not wearing his sweatpants today. That's so true. He's not. Leveled up. That's a secret. Nobody's supposed to know that. We are less than a week until election day. So much to talk about today. We're going to head to the sunflower state. Who can tell me what the sunflower state is? I read the script. Is that cheating? Yes, it is. But I can. Okay. I'll let you. What is it, Grace? Grace hasn't looked. Kansas. Kansas is the sunflower state. I had no idea. Uh, we're going to dive into not one but two house races in Kansas. Uh, and then we're also going to go to Maine. Uh, Grace is a Maine native, so she's going to uh, have some expertise on that end. And we're also going to talk about the Montana Senate odds. And then we'll finish things off with the governor's race in Ohio. But before we get to all of that, let's get to the forecast. Harry, where are we as Election Day slowly creeps towards us. So it's basically the same story that we've been seeing this entire cycle, or at least since we started this podcast. Democrats are favored in the House. Right now, the forecast has them winning 226 seats. Of course, you need 218 for a majority. Republicans at just 209 seats. But of course, there's a wide margin of error with that. And hopefully that'll shrink as we get some late data in. But right now, Democrats could win as many as 262 seats or as few as 203 seats. So wide margin of error, a lot of close races. The Senate, I feel a little bit more certain about that, and that is that Republicans are likely to hold on to the Senate. Right now, the forecast is for them to control 52 seats after the election. They currently control 51 seats. That'd be a net gain of one for them. But there is a margin of error with that. The GOP could control as few as 49 seats, so that would be Democrats of 51, give them a majority, or they can control as many as 56 seats. There are a lot of close races, um, one of which we will talk a little bit about that's kind of on the edge later with Montana. And let me throw a little extra at you. Oh, I love extra. In the governor's races, woo, governors, <laughs> um, right now we believe that Republicans will end up controlling 26 governorships after the election, Democrats just... 24. Currently, there are 33 GOP governors, so that's a pretty good gain for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. But let's also look at it another way and look at the percentage of population that will be controlled by Democratic governors versus Republican governors. Even though there will be more GOP governors, the percentage of the population controlled by Democratic governors, we believe, will be around 60 percent of the population versus just 40 percent, which would be controlled by a Republican governor. All right. That's great stuff. Now, as uh, we said before, the first two House races we're going to focus on are in Kansas. The the first race we're going to talk about is in the 2nd District. The Republican there, Steve Watkins, is running against the Democrat Paul Davis. Uh, and there's actually a third candidate in this race, which could hurt the Democrats. That's the Libertarian candidate, uh, Kelly Stanley. Uh, so this uh, is an open seat because the uh, current uh, uh, member of Congress there, Lynn Jenkins, is not seeking re-election. 
Watkins is a West Point graduate, former Army Ranger, really new to politics. He actually isn't even from Kansas. He spent much of his adult life out, outside the state. Uh, and he did win a primary in a pretty crowded field. Davis, a former minority leader, this is somebody that's been around politics for a long time in Kansas. He was actually the Democratic nominee for governor in 2014. Um, he actually carried this district that he's running in now, but he did lose uh, the, the gubernatorial race to the Republican Sam Brownback. Now, Stanley's the kind of wild card in all of this. He's actually the former Democratic Party chair in Southeast Kansas. Uh, he decided to run as a libertarian in the general election because he said party leaders uh, told him not to run against Davis in the primary. So that does complicate uh, the situation overall. Um, Harry, I, I think Democrats would probably be encouraged about a race like this. Uh, Kansas, obviously a ruby red state. Uh, do they have a shot here? I not only think they have a shot, I think they're more likely than not to win this. Our, our forecast currently has Davis winning by three percentage points. There was a poll out from the New York Times, uh, Siena, earlier this week that showed that Davis was ahead and showed that both candidates were stuck right around the 40 percent mark, which is an indication of the strength of the libertarian. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right. This is a GOP district, right? Pretty much everything matches what you might expect. It's more rural than the nation as an average at 37 percent rural. 87% of the citizen voting age population is non-Hispanic white, again, well above the national average. 28% of adults 25 or older have a college degree. That's below the national average. Trump won this district by 18. The weighted average partisanship is plus 15 GOP. But Davis is well known. Um, more than that, uh, the libertarian candidate is pulling votes away, we believe, from Watkins. And Watkins had some late-breaking allegations of sexual misconduct. And Watkins may even be a little too conservative for Kansas. He's a Bannonite. Bannon came to campaign for him versus Lynn Jacobs, who was more of a mainstream GOPer. And anyone who studied Kansas politics knows that there are really three parties in the state a moderate GOP, a conservative GOP, and a Democratic Party. So just to, to clarify this, so Stanley, even though uh, a former Democratic Party chair running as a libertarian, he's actually drawing Republican votes away, not Democratic votes. That's what we believe. I mean, the polling isn't so great. You know, polling, when you get down to that district level, as Grace can kind of say, you know, gets really a little interesting. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't a whole slew of data, but the common conventional wisdom is, in fact, that the libertarian is pulling votes away from Watkins. Mm -hmm. And thank goodness for Siena New York Times for really pulling these small districts that we wouldn't have data in otherwise. I mean, we've only got the two polls in this district, and they're both Siena and New York Times, but they tell us a lot about the race. You know, um, Davis has been up in both polls, which means that Democrats aren't totally counted out here. Yeah. So one of the really interesting dynamics that we're seeing in this race and we're seeing across the map, one of the really big stories of this election cycle, I think, is this is a Republican retirement district right, where right. you would have had Republicans at least having a chance in this district if Jenkins had decided to serve another term to run for re-election. Uh, but you've had dozens of Republicans decide this year to either retire or run for higher office, uh, House Republicans. And so that makes it that much harder for Republicans in a tough election year uh, to win these districts, to keep these districts, because you don't start with that incumbency advantage. And so I think if Democrats do take back the House and we're looking back on election night at some of the factors that really hurt Republicans, retirements is definitely going to be a big one. And one of the things we've talked about often on this podcast is it's not just that they're retiring, but they're also taking with it that kind of singular identity they had in that district. And when it's a new candidate, somebody like like Watkins, who probably is not really known 
uh, to many voters prior to his decision to run, it's so much easier for someone like that to get swept up in the identity of Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And this is something also that Democrats have done throughout the board is they have recruited very, very well, right? Davis is a very good candidate to run this district. Um, and we've seen Republicans, on the other hand, sometimes nominating people from out of, you know, out of state or people who haven't right. been in the state very long. I mean, yeah. go to the West Virginia Senate race, which we'll be covering at some point in the near future. And you see that Patrick Morrissey in that race is from New Jersey. Yeah. What are you doing here? Spent a lot of time in Washington. Democrats want to localize the race, make sure that the candidates are well known so you can win in these ruby red areas. And I just want to do a quick plug for our colleague Manu Raju, who was out in this district this week doing some reporting on the race. He was in Lawrence, Kansas, talking to Davis uh, and asked Davis about whether he would support Pelosi if he's elected. And Davis said he wouldn't, uh, which Uh is, I think, a very interesting dynamic and also says a lot about how he's running this race. He's not doing the Beto running as a proud liberal sort of thing. He's running in the middle here. Right, right. And I don't necessarily think Manu needs more promotion. He don't probably you feel like doesn't. Manu gets enough publicity? I mean, he is... He is Manu Raj. He is one of the biggest stars yeah. at CNN. Yeah, that was... Yeah, probably wasn't necessary. That's, that's okay. okay though. Plug where Manu. you can. Yeah, exactly. We'll take all plugs. All right. Uh, the other Kansas race we're looking at is in the third district. That's where uh, the incumbent, uh, Republican Kevin Yoder, facing off against Democrat Sharice Davids. Yoder, an example of someone who decided not to retire, uh, is still running despite the difficult climate. Uh, He's also running with President Trump. Uh, He was endorsed by the president. He supported the tax overhaul bill. He's also supported efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Davids is a lawyer, a former White House fellow. She is uh, one of the interesting characters in this election, an ex-MMA fighter. Uh, If elected, she'd become the first lesbian Native American congresswoman in history. Uh, Yoder uh, has a significant fundraising advantage. Uh, in the latest uh, financial reporting, he's bringing in close to $3 million, $2.7 million. Uh, David's only about $345,000. Uh, you know, just based on uh, what I'm reading on paper here, Harry, this seems like it would be a tough hill uh, for David's uh, to climb. Does she have any kind of a shot? Well, sometimes the papers do lie to you. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I would say that David's is a heavy favorite in this district. Wow. She's uh, got the, more than a shot. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she our forecast has her winning by eight points. Uh, keep in mind that this is the type of district, even in Kansas, that we'd expect a Democrat to do well in, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it has a weighted average partisanship of plus eight GOP, Trump lost it by one after Romney won it by 10. It's just 5% roll, and 46% of the population has a college degree. It's in the Kansas City suburbs. Mm-hmm. So basically what you have is the third is basically captured by the second. <laughs> it almost like mm-hmm. forms like a C-shape. I shake. wish you could see Harry's hand movements right there. <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, sometimes I think I'm on TV. Yes, well. exactly. Yeah. Um, and so So, you know, this is the type of place where you'd expect a Democrat to do well. And more than that, Kevin Yoder, as you mentioned, very conservative. I think is probably too conservative for this district, especially in this pro-democratic national environment. And so if you want an idea of how uh, damaging it is to be tied to Trump in this sort of district, in a suburban district like this one, Yoder has actually recently tried to tie his Democratic opponent to Trump. She served <laughs> briefly as a fellow uh, in starting in the Obama administration, and there was some carryover into the Trump administration. And now Yoder has been going out there saying, what is it in her track record that would tell us she actually would stand up to President Trump when she worked for him and supported his... <laughs> it's the most ridiculous <laughs> argument. That, that's a sign, I think, that someone's in trouble, right? Yeah. That they're pulling out. I mean, that takes some real... When you um, have the endorsement of said person. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which was... I mean, President 
President Trump shouldn't have made that endorsement if he right. had any sense of what well, this district Trump is this race disliked like. in this district. The yes. New York Times Siena poll has met 41% approve, which is rough for mm. somewhere that is red as Kansas. And this is probably also an example of a place you're not going to see President Trump come to, right? I mean, we pretty much already know his schedule in the closing days of the campaign, and it's been pretty clear that he's been only going to places where he is loved, uh, Pensacola, Florida being an example <laughs> of that. Uh, and so it doesn't really help Yoder at all to have the president come to Kansas City. Right. You know, look, races will be run. This race is technically within the margin of error in our forecast, but this is a race where I would be very, very surprised if Kevin Yoder is still a congressman come the next Congress, and Trump has no business here. If he ever showed up in this district in the final days, I would literally question his political acumen and say, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. All right, so it could yeah. be a Democratic... Uh a big Democratic wave in Kansas, which is interesting. Kansas has been so consistently Republican for the last, you know, four to eight years. Uh, this would definitely be a resurgence for Democrats there. Uh, really, their last prominent Democrat would be Kathleen Sebelius, right, the former governor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, our last house race, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> so excited. I couldn't resist. Thank Amy Eason wrote that. I didn't oh. give her credit for that. Uh, we're in Maine, uh, and we have the incumbent Republican uh, Bruce Poliquin taking on the Democrat Jared Golden. Paul Quinn, former state treasurer, he's got a background in finance. Uh, he has the distinction of being New England's only Republican House member. Uh, he's voted for the Republican tax cut plan, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. In 2016, he actually refused to endorse the then candidate uh, Donald Trump. Golden is a representative in the main house, uh, a Marine Corps veteran, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's been running left on economic issues, talking about universal health care, a pre-K, an expansion of veterans and social security benefits, and strong labor laws. Interesting wrinkle here is that there hasn't been an incumbent to lose a race here since, eh, not too long ago, 1916. That would make you think uh, that the incumbent has an advantage in this situation. Uh, Harry, I'm going to defer to our Mainer to start this conversation. Grace, what can you tell us about this district? Well, I can't tell you how overwhelmingly excited I was when I got the message that we were going to talk about Maine today. (laughs) I'm from the great state. I'm the biggest Maine dork that you know. I'm representing an overwhelming population of Mainers at CNN. That's right. I was going to say, I know quite a few Maine dorks uh, (laughs) just from working at CNN, but yes. And the most exciting thing about this race is that it is one of the first that we are using ranked choice voting, which will be a new play in the state of Maine. So explain that to us. How does that work? So basically every voter ranks their vote. So you say, oh, I want to vote for Poliquin. My second choice will be golden, an independent candidate, third choice, et cetera, et cetera, until you've run out of candidates. It's like the college football voting. Like exactly. For the college football rankings, yes. yeah. And so if a candidate has below 50%, they take the last candidate, cut him out of the race, and reallocate all the second choices. Wow. Until someone has 50% of the vote. So no one wins with 33% of the vote at Governor Paula Page. Wow. Our that, current governor who is, has never it, won with over 50%. Is there anywhere else in the country that's doing voting like this? You've got a couple states that are doing it in certain districts. California's got a couple places, um, but Maine is the first place to implement it statewide, which mm-hmm. is extremely exciting. Maine has a very strong independent force, right. as you can see in this race, where you've got two independents running in this one, you've got independents running for Senate. Uh, it's just all over the place in terms of really strong independent candidates. I mean, we've got Angus King mm-hmm, representing right, right. us. 
So uh, how, does that, how does that impact things, Harry? The real way it will impact things is we might not know who wins this district for a long while to come. It took six uh, yeah. days for them to count the ranked choice voting in the primary. Mm -hmm. And every indication that we have is that this is going to be a very, very tight race. Right now, the forecast is that Golden will actually win by two points, but that, of course, is well within the margin of error. And this is one of these very interesting districts. It's one of these Obama-Trump districts, right? Mm -hmm. Trump won it by 10 after Obama won it by 9. The weighted average partisanship is plus 7 GOP. And if you just look at the district overall, it's almost like in the United States, the further north you go, the more southern it becomes in terms of how you think about characteristics, <laughs> right, right? Right, right, right. You know, this district is 72% rural. It is 96% white non-Hispanic and just 22% of those adults 25 and older have a college degree. So this is the type of district you'd think Trump would do really well in, but it does seem if you're looking across the board that a lot of these northern rural areas that were supporting Obama and then supported Trump may be backing away a little bit and be more friendly towards the Democrats. Yeah, and if uh, the Republicans would lose in a district like this where Donald Trump was so strong, such a working class district as opposed to some of the more suburban districts we've been talking about, I think you're going to see Donald Trump and his team, uh, they're going to have to do some soul searching ahead of 20. 20, because it's one thing if you're losing the college-educated white voters that were sort of reluctant to vote for Trump in the first place the, the in Kansas 2016. district we talked about before, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you are losing the working-class voters that he was so proud to have won over, that Democrats were so worried about Trump winning over, these labor union, these types of working-class voters, that's going to be a big problem for Trump, and his team is going to have to assess how And to he seems to that. have a particular affinity for Maine, too. No, Trump talks about Maine a lot. He's been there a couple well, of times. He loves Paula Page. Yes, right. He does. And his approval is right in the middle. It's 47% approve, 47% disapprove. Mm. So it's really just the definition of a toss-up we got here. Wow. We'll be up late waiting for the main returns to come in. Well, you might as well fall asleep because I think that <laughs> it'll be days. It might be days. Get your bean Maybe boots weeks. ready. So here's the question then, Harry. Will we know who the winner is in Maine, this Maine House race before we know the winner of the governor's race in Georgia? That I think we're going, if I were making a bet, I'd say we know the winner in Maine before we know it in Georgia, because I think Georgia will have a runoff. Wow. All right. Okay. You heard it here first. Mark it down. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to head to big sky country and pivot to the Senate. And then we're also going to check in on the governor's race going down in the Buckeye State. We are filled with state nicknames today. That shows you how close we are to an election. Stay tuned. That's up next. Harry, uh, in our last episode, you briefly mentioned a couple of races that you've kept your eyes on, but we haven't really discussed. So let's take a look at them now. The first up, a really fascinating race in Montana. The Senate race there with the longtime incumbent, the Democrat John Tester. It seems like every uh, national publication has done the story where they go out to Montana and they go out onto the farm with John Tester and talk about how he's resilient and how he's beaten back challenges in the past. He's taking on the Republican nominee, Matt Rosendale. Uh, there was a third candidate in this race, but this was an interesting development on Wednesday. The Libertarian candidate, uh, Rick Breckenridge, announced that he's backing Rosendale. Yeah, that was, it's a very weird thing. He yeah. said that on Wednesday and then like a Thursday, he's like, I, don't, I never said that. Right. <laughs> uh, Breckenridge uh, concedes he doesn't have the votes to win, but he he wanted to push back against the dark money in politics, is what he said. 
Uh, Tester running for a third term, uh, most notably, and where Tester really got himself in some trouble, is when he helped to derail Trump's nominee to run the Veteran Affairs Department. Uh, Tester's the ranking member uh, on the Veterans Committee in the Senate, uh, and he was also a no on the Kavanaugh confirmation. So where you've seen some of these uh, red state Democrats kind of uh, pick and choose uh, opportunities to, to support President Trump, uh, Tester's kind of held firm uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, Rosendale is the current auditor of the state. Uh, he's originally from Maryland, uh, and he's had to fend off the accusations of being an interloper and a carpetbagger. Um, we'll get to the forecast on this in a minute, um, but let's talk to Grace first about how difficult it is to poll a state like Montana. Just talk to us about kind of the complications involved with that. Well, so Montana is weird uh, and specific. It's just a poll. Yeah. It's not weird in general. Montana <laughs> no, is a lovely place. just yeah. a poll. Yeah. I'm sure it's beautiful. <laughs> uh, but it's got some pretty strict laws about who you're allowed to call and how much you can be fined for violating that. So it's much harder and, more importantly, very expensive to reach residents of the state. So we have very few polls there. The polls that we do have tend to be from universities that are located within the state. They have an easier time um, reaching the residents to meet their demographic quotas, to wait, um, and it's just complicated. So our single good poll out of Montana is from Montana State University in Billings, shows Tester up by nine points among likely voters, which, to my knowledge, I think matches our forecast pretty well. So the one poll, and how does that impact yeah, the so forecast? I, I mean, look, we... <laughs> try and wait up the polls that have done the best historically speaking, the high quality polls, cell phone, calling cell phones, live interviews, so on and so forth. In this case, the forecast does have John Tester favored to win by eight. Um, and as Chris was speaking about, Montana is a little bit of a weird state, right? It's a heavily rural state. 44% of population lives in rural areas. It's 90% non-Hispanic white. Trump won here by 20. And the weighted average partisanship is plus 17 GOP. You would think this is a state with a Democratic incumbent being a lot of trouble. But here's a few things to point out. Number one, the Libertarian candidate's still on the ballot. And Tester's never actually won with a majority, I don't believe. And more than that, it's a heavily union state. 14% of workers are represented by a union which is tied for 15th in the nation. So that makes this state perhaps a little bit friendlier to Democrats than you might expect just looking at the partisanship of it. You know, I think we need to have a conversation about Republican recruitment on the Senate side. Right. Because despite the fact that our forecast currently shows Republicans potentially winning 52 seats, having 52 seats when all is said and done, these races should not have been difficult. For Republicans. They are losing right now in West Virginia. They are losing right now in Montana. Indiana, they are losing by a few points or it's a toss-up. Missouri is a toss-up. None of these candidates have been very good. You look at Braun in Indiana. You look at, I mean, Rick Scott in Florida is another example. Hawley has disappointed a lot of people in Missouri. And Rosendale, it, he had this obvious issue coming from Maryland. Republicans could have seen that uh, Democrats would use the carpetbagger attack against him. Uh, and I feel like they've just made it so much tougher than it needed to be uh, by not having stronger candidates. And in I'm these fascinated states. by the fact that there weren't legions of Republicans lining up to run in some of these races. Right. And you're seeing it, an opportunity to run for the United States Senate in a place like Montana, uh, where you could get a candidate up to speed in terms of name recognition uh, without an, an enormous investment in terms of ads and, and, and getting that person out there. The fact that you've got to find somebody that's from Maryland 
really speaks to those recruitment efforts not being as strong as they could have been. Right. I think that's exactly right. And I think that this proves that even in this day and age where there's hyper-partisanship and that people are more than ever voting, you know, straight up and down the ballot for one party, quality of the candidate still matters. Mm -hmm. And Democrats mm -hmm. made a real effort in that. And Republicans perhaps couldn't get as many high-quality candidates on the ballot because of Donald Trump's unpopularity and the right. national environment being against them. And, you know, and I think in the past, that's where Democrats are, have fallen short. Republicans uh, seem to have put more emphasis on really quality candidates in past election cycles. Say what you will about Donald Trump, but he turned out to be a pretty good candidate, uh, and that's one of the reasons he's president of the United States. Right. And frankly, I think this will also be a story on the House side as well. We've seen a lot of really impressive Democratic recruits. The party has refocused its energy on finding people who really fit the district veterans, etc. I think this is going to be one of the really big success stories for Democrats. And so many of the best Republican members of Congress decided they just didn't want to do it anymore yeah. <laughs> and just decided that they weren't And can it. you blame them? Yeah, exactly. Well, Montana's very weird because you've got 49% approval for Trump in this poll, but you've also got approval of Congress, which is at a whopping 15% among right. likely voters in the state of Montana. Which you I think mean, would be prime for a Republican Senate candidate to take advantage of. Let me once again reiterate, we mean Montana is weird electorally. We think <laughs> Montana is a Very wonderful nice place overall, state. even though we've called it weird like five times. All right, finally, we're going to discuss the Ohio governor's race. Uh, the matchup here between the Democrat Richard Cordray running against the Republican Mike DeWine. Uh, this is an open seat. Of course, John Kasich, uh, who's well known to all political nerds, the current governor there, uh, he's term limited. Cordray uh, deep ties to the Obama presidency is the former director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, he's also a former attorney general of the state of Ohio. DeWine is the current attorney general. So this is attorney general versus attorney general. Uh, DeWine also a former U.S. senator. This is going to be the second face-off between these two following the 2010 election for attorney general. Uh, DeWine won that, but it was so close, 47.5% to 46.3%. This, of course, a pod exclusive because Harry does not publicly uh, uh, forecast governor's races only for podcast listeners. Harry, give us the forecast for this I'm race. I'm going to bore you, and right now the forecast is pretty much dead even. Dead even. I think there's wow. 0.2 percentage points in the forecast differentiating these two candidates. And when it's that small, I'm not going to even tell you who's ahead. Um, look, Ohio, 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 as Tim Russert once said, right, in 2004. This is a key swing state. Yes, Donald Trump won it by eight, but Obama won it by three. The weighted average partisanship of the state is plus eight GOP, but Democrats can do well. Sherrod Brown, obviously, is favored in the Senate race there. And look, if the Democrats can win here, then they'll probably control the governorship in every Midwest state that Obama won both times. Mm. And that would be the mm. exclamation point on a Democratic resurgence this year in the Midwest after Donald Trump really broke through that big blue wall like a Kool-Aid man. So can I tell you guys my favorite thing about this race? Yes, please. Has been the local media over and over again, insisting that this is not a boring race. Here was a headline recently uh, from Cleveland. Richard Cordray and Mike DeWine might seem boring, but the Ohio's, Ohio governor's race is anything but dull. And here is their supporting evidence. Cordray is a five-time Jeopardy champion. Wow. And, I had no idea. And he plays pickup basketball in his spare time. And DeWine is That's one of exciting. the longest-serving 
public officials, so that's what makes this a very exciting race. <laughs> Not the fact that it's dead even. The fact that he plays pickup basketball. So great. I, lo- I love Ohio. I love the Midwest. I well, really do. It just, it's continually fascinating to me how really Ohio is the ultimate swing state. And, you know, we talked about this a lot in Florida about the chance that Floridians might split the ticket and a Republican might win the governor's race and a Democrat might win the Senate race or vice versa. This, it seems pretty assuredly that there's a real potential here, Harry, in Ohio that they really could split the ticket, that Sherrod Brown could go back to the Senate, but a Republican could win the governorship. I mean, if Sherrod Brown does not win this race, I will publicly apologize on this podcast. He's up by double digits in our forecast. He couldn't add with his dog. I mean, he's winning this race. He, he, I mean, look, dogs are winners all the way around, whether they're small, <laughs> or big or medium size, male or female, I'm just a fan. But yeah, hard to agree. <laughs> Look, th- there, there is a real potential here, and this really is going to be one of the tighter races we think on election night. But there would have to be then a significant amount of DeWine Brown voters in order for him to win. That's correct. And I, I think, you know, you really did not see good recruitment for the Republicans on the Senate side with Jim Renakey. Um, being the chosen nominee. He's just too far to the right for this state in this particular year. DeWine is a little bit more chill, you know, is well-known statewide. Yes, he was defeated by Brown in 2006, but he's won statewide, you know, any, I think like half a dozen times or so. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he was the right candidate for this time, but the question is whether or not the political environment in Ohio is just too blue at this time. And I'll point out one other thing. If you're looking for, quote-unquote, late momentum, Cordry's been the one who has risen in the polls relative to DeWine, who had a large early lead in this race. So quick question. Do we think that this is in any way a referendum on John Kasich and his administration? Uh, Not really. I mean, Kasich still has a high approval rating in the state. Of course, it's a very weird thing, right, where he is well liked by Democrats, perhaps even more so than Republicans, depending on which poll you look at. Right. So, you know, Kasich's own lieutenant governor, Mary Taylor, was in the primary against uh, Mike DeWine and Taylor did not want the endorsement mm. of John Kasich because that's how poisonous his brand is among Republicans. But DeWine just had Kasich kind of for him. Right, right, because in the general election, it's a completely it's a different. different ballgame where yeah. Kasich mm-hmm. does appeal to the center of the electorate, which DeWine is hoping to do and he'll definitely need to do if he has any hopes of winning this race. Wow, fascinating race. That'll be uh, an exciting one to watch uh, on Election Day. Okay, it is now time for trivia. Last week was shameful. We were really bad. People on Twitter were yelling, said they were literally yelling at their phones, uh, answering your question correctly, Harry. Well, Rebecca and I struggled. Luckily, we have Grace here. Oh, I'm not sure I'll be very helpful. Odds are she's smarter on these uh, topics than Rebecca and I are. But hit us. Let's see if we can. Unlike Cordray, I would not be a five-time Jeopardy. No, (laughs) certainly not. Not, None of us would. The category is... (laughs) Celebrity activism. Should we uh, answer in the form of a question? The answer answer. is Alyssa Milano. (laughs) That is incorrect. I believe it's who is Alyssa Milano. (laughs) Very good. All right. All right. Quote, if I had known I wasn't going to win, I wouldn't had run, said NASCAR driver Richard Petty after losing a race for Secretary of State in this state. Let me repeat the question so we're clear. (laughs) Quote, if I had known I wasn't going to win, I wouldn't have run, said NASCAR driver Richard Petty after losing a race for Secretary of State in this state. That's such a good quote. Wow. Richard Petty. Where did Richard Petty run for office? I did not know this. Fun fact, it was back in 1996, I believe, and the person who defeated him still holds 
the position the same of Secretary office. of State. Wow. Ooh. Um, so that's a good hint if I knew state-by-state state term limit laws. Right. Or if you just knew Secretary of States in each right. individual state, which I'm, I'm kind of ashamed that you don't know that, Rebecca. It's a little <laughs> disappointing. I'm going to go with Alabama. I will take Mississippi. Grace, do you have a guess? I can tell by the disdain in Harry's voice that Rebecca and I are both wrong. Arkansas? The correct answer is North Carolina. That was my second because NASCAR. NASCAR is home to Charlotte. Elaine Marshall is still the Secretary of State in North Carolina, I I do believe. Why would Richard Petty want to be the Secretary of State of North Carolina? Who knows? All right. Fair enough. We're going to ask one more, All and right. we'll see. See if we can salvage this. Man. If you can salvage this. I should have gone this. with my gut on that one. You thought North Carolina. Because of NASA. Yeah, that makes more sense. Guess. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. All right. During the 1968 campaign, Richard Nixon uttered the catchphrase, quote, suck it to me, on this ensemble comedy show. Laughing. I was just reading a Nixon biography, and so I, oh, at one point I knew the answer to this. What was the year again? 1968. I got it right. I it's don't over. Even, I, don't I got even it right. Remember. It's laughing. Laughing. Goldie Hawn. That was her line. Just tell him I got it right. That's I'm going to double down with Ryan. <laughs> I, I don't know any ensemble <laughs> Yeah, shows. Yeah, it, it was laughing. Yeah. It was laughing. And I'm the champion. <laughs> and, and they literally uh, show his face and they go, right. sock it to me? Yes, yes. It's a great line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was really incredible that he volunteered to do that, given who he was at that time and what that show was at that time. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Now, listen, we really need you to do this. We need you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, your favorite podcast app. It was interesting this week. I was going through and just searching. Basically, if there's a podcast app out there that you use, we're on there. You just got to search for the forecast and you'll find us. And while you're there on your favorite app, leave us a rating or a review Tell, be honest with us about what you think. But only be, if it's positive. No, be honest in the comments. Okay. But in the stars, just make hit, it five. Just hit, hit the hit five. The, hit the five. <laughs> so you could savage us in the comments as long as you hit the five. That's correct. We yes. need a high approval rating. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and then the other thing is, go on, and I saw a bunch of people do this on Twitter this week. Go on Twitter, uh, put a link to the podcast, and tell people that you enjoy what you hear so that we can uh, get this podcast out there to more people. And so we are really close to the election. Uh, We did this bonus episode today. We are actually going to have one more episode before Election Day. Uh, So that's a reason to tell people uh, to subscribe as well. So we'll give you that one last thought before voters go to the polls on Tuesday. And as always, you can find us on Twitter where you can send us your feedback and your questions. I'm Ryan Nobles with one N. Rebecca? I'm Rebecca G. Berg. And Grace, tell everybody what your handle is. I am at GSparks94. And I'm at Forecasterenta. I was going to say I'm Harriet, which is also true. <laughs> but <laughs> not your handle. And I'm at Forecasterenton, and this is The Forecast with Harriet. And always special thanks to our producers, Amy Eason and Emma Soslowski. We will see you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.